Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, lovelies. Hello. And welcome back to the show. No preamble this week. Michael's got a life and therefore has something that he has to get to. So we're just going to do a couple of emails. Again, we're probably not going to do all of them because we've got tons of them. Thank you. We haven't caught up yet. We have still not caught up, no. Mm -hmm. The inbox is busting at the seams, which we thank you for because we do like receiving lots of emails. Mm-hmm. It's always nice. So the first one tonight is uh, Rob Stubbs. Hello, Rob. It's entitled, You Are Fired. Oh. Well, who's going to do the show then? Yeah. If we're fired. <laughs> is he just going to listen to an hour and a half of MTR? Yeah. I'll, I'll find some replacements. <laughs> I'll find somebody else to do it for us. Yeah, we'll get Anya and Ange, but do one. Yeah. I think that would probably be a very short show. Anyway, Rob's email. Hello, Rob. Greetings to you, Mr. Leyland, a.k.a. and L. And greetings to you, Mr. Mike Kell, my Kryptonian cousins. First of all, I'm picturing a reality television show where Hydra, in the interest of improving their money flow, holds auditions, which they film, to find their next CEO. You can have appearances by the likes of Doctor Doom, the Mandarin, Modoc, Otto Parker as the superior Spider-Man, and Diablo. Doom does not do reality television, even though Doom would clearly win, because Doom is superior to any other applicant. Doom does not appreciate the idea of that imbecile Johnny Storm being able to acquire Doom's private personal phone number. Doom has lesser beings to answer anyone who dares to call personally. Doom also does not appreciate the dislikes Doom has received on Doombook, the superior social network site. Have a good day, insignificant and lesser intellects. Do you want to think on Doombook, then everything would have a dislike button, yeah, except for anything Doctor Doom posts. In fact, you would be banned from doing anything on Doombook, apart from liking Doom's posts. Yeah, yeah. That's it, that was the sole purpose of Doombook. All the pages are Doctor Doom. Yeah. <laughs> Doom likes this page. Doctor Doom's secret. And um, adverts for Sunny Latveria keep popping up. Yeah. And buying Latverian motor cars. You're not allowed to buy a foreign car. A Doom Mustang. And then you'd have other other adverts popping up. Are you over 40 and single? Doom likes this. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you live a lonely life? Do you like a Doom bot? <laughs> well, call now for a Doom sex bot. <laughs> Doom does not like this. <laughs> and they all have Dr. Doom's face mask. <laughs> Because the unisex Doom sex bots. A surprise Doctor Doom look. <laughs> anyway, Rob continued. I am divided on the idea of year ones, as it can be bad or good depending on the writer and artist. I will remain positive and not go off on a rant about the sheer hatred Didido has for Dick Grayson in his efforts to kill the poor man off. I suspect with zero evidence that the previously mentioned person called multiple times in the first American Idol decision to kill or not kill the second Robin. (laughs) Do you think that's true? 
dandy do was just sat there and redial because he thought you were being asked to kill off Dick Grayson. So he's just redialing all the time. Kill him! Kill him! Kill him! Kill him! What do you mean it's Jason Todd? We're worried in this fall. <laughs> I want to kill Dick Grayson! And that hatred that he was conned out of all that money yeah. voting to kill off Jason Todd has just fested inside of him like a boil. <laughs> and slowly the pustule boil has just popped. So now he has the opportunity. And now he's finally got the opportunity to kill off Dick Grayson in the most horrible way imaginable. And he keeps being beaten down by the yeah. other people at DC. It's not just an entire issue of 22 pages of killing Dick Grayson. It's a six-issue <laughs> miniseries called Let's Hunt and Kill Dick Grayson. <laughs> kill Dick, volume one and volume two. <laughs> that would be quite a funny series. Especially if he ends up being like Kenny himself, yeah. but every time they kill him, he's just like, no, no, I'm still here. And, and then you have your, your special spin-offs where every supervillain dreams of how they'd kill Dick Grayson. <laughs> Chuck Dixon is not a great writer. Oh, I'm going to have to disagree with you there, Rob. But someone who is consistently good in what he writes, which in my view is a lot better for someone you are reading in the long term. I think if DC had a whole slew of writers and artists and so forth who were consistently good, they would be in a lot better position business-wise, instead of depending on stars to attract readers. The story's fine, the art's fine, I don't have a problem with either. Batman is portrayed as a truly horrible person as he fires his partner and adopted son. I think the idea of Richard Grayson wandering around on a quest to find himself doesn't work like it would with Oliver Queen or Hal Jordan, as he already knows himself fairly well. I will forgive them, though, as it gives us the interaction between Richard and Clark and Lois, which was wonderful. I don't think the story was so much concerned with Dick Grayson finding himself, because, like you say in the email, he knows who he is. It was more of a case of him finding where he was going to go from here. What to do now? Yeah, Dick Grayson's never been a navel-gazer. Mm. He's always been confident in who he is and what he does. And even if his identity crisis that led him to give up being Robin was simply a quest to become his own man. He no longer wanted to be the back end of Batman and. Yeah. So it wasn't so much a question, a quest for finding him. He knew who he was. He just didn't know what he wanted to do from that point. If he's no longer Robin, then what does he want to do? But he was never, I am no longer Robin, oh woe is me, was he? Mm. He was always right, I'm no longer Robin, but what am I going to do now? That was more what I took from it, but Stories are open to interpretation, as Grant Morrison would no doubt agree with. Uh, have you been following that? No. Grant Morrison said on Fat Man on Batman, it's an episode I've not listened to yet, right. that he always interpreted the ending of the killing joke as Batman kills the Joker. That was right. his interpretation of the end of the story. Just for the record, I think that's complete bollocks. Is this because of the script research? No, no, it's nothing to do with the script. That was, I mean, I've not listened to the episode yet, but my interpretation of it is he said he always read it as that. Right. Art is open to interpretation. So yeah. my interpretation of it was it actually ends with the same panel that it begins with, doesn't it? So my interpretation of it is this is cyclical. It has all happened before, it will all happen again. It's A, a comment on the cyclical nature of superhero comics, and B, a comment on Batman and Joker's relationship. It is never ending until one of them dies. Right. Okay. I never interpreted that ending as Batman killed the Joker, but Grant Morrison did, alright, fair enough. Again, right. art is in the eye of the beholder. I interpreted it as Batman lost. He lost at the Joker's joke. You, yeah, okay. You can you can interpret it as Batman didn't win that round yeah. because he mu- mutilates Batgirl and humiliates Commissioner Gordon. Whether or not he rapes Commissioner Gordon is, again, left open to interpretation. I never go, though, 
that's not where my mind goes. I didn't get that, but I was like, what, 14 when I read it? Yeah, but, well, I read it older, and I've read it again, yeah. and I still never get that he's raped him. But that's another thing Grant Morrison said. I've written comics for 15 years now. I never felt the need to rape anybody. Yeah. But anyway, that's beside the point. Bleeding Cool jumped on this. Oh, did they? And milked it dry. Analyzing panels and stuff. Yeah, I've been reading it because they've been comparing it to the new script yeah. that's come up. My favourite bit is there's a panel where Batman's got his hand. Yeah, so the poison yeah. needle. Thing. Yeah, is there a poison needle? Is he looking in a mirror? Because that's where he knows where the Joker is. Yeah. No... He's fixing his mask, because quite clearly in the panel before that, the joke hits him over the head with the two before. Yeah. And at that point, I'm like, this is just ridiculous. <laughs> and I stopped even bothering reading any more that he put. I mean, Morrison's interpretation of the ending differs from my interpretation of the ending. Mainly because the Joker's still alive. Yeah. And Killing Joke can no longer now be out of continuity, because Barbara Gordon was crippled. Yeah. Originally, Alan Moore wrote it as being an out-of-continuity series. Right. But, whatever. So, I, that was just ridiculous. That was the week in news, as it was. Anyway, sorry, so we went on a tangent there, didn't we? However, this has a downside. It makes the interactions between Alfred, Bruce and Jason look even worse. I am firing you as Robin, Richard, as I want to work alone, is short-lived, as Bruce brings home someone he caught trying to steal Batmobile's tyres. So, replacing the experienced, highly trained person who you have adopted as a son with someone who's trying to steal your car tyres makes perfect sense if you are, say, the Joker. Maybe if Rick Jones has been around, he could have become the next Robin instead of being rookie. <laughs> Rick Jones as Robin would be quite funny. He's been every other sidekick, hasn't he? Yeah. The circus has to be in the book as it's both a way to introduce the new costume and it's an important part of Dick Grayson's past. It's necessary for him to realise that he's just going to stop being a costumed hero as he has more to do with his life than just Bruce. So once he gets that point crystallised for him by revisiting his past, he moves on. He doesn't waste time in angsty wondering if this is the right thing to do like other people would. The confrontation between former Robin and current Robin is predictable as far as results go. The book is about relationships and connections, which for the most part is well done, which leads to Nightwing and is even worse than Gotham City Blood Harbin Run, which I enjoyed. I think it's perfectly acceptable. And L to do the nitpick sections, even if all the stories are invalidated by what's going on now, as you were talking about what was going on then and what it was trying to do in relationship to back then. Just remember, stay at least 21 feet away from the gold crypt tonight. <laughs> Your Kryptonian cousin, Rob L., which is Rob L. Stubbs Jr. Thank you very much, Rob. Another email is from Luke Giaconetti. Hello, Luke. Hey there, you filthy, stinking muties. I'll refrain from doing another Moody Blues joke here, but I will go spin Days of Future Past after I finish this email. Brace yourself, Japs. Despite it being one of the comic book commandments, I have not read the Clermont Burn and Austin X-Men. Don't! I've read bits and pieces of it, but unfortunately Days of Future Past is not one of them. I need to get a hold of a reprint of this at some point. This is one of those stories where by this point every reader of a certain age knows the story, but has still earned a spot on the shelf nonetheless. It's available as quite a lot of separate reprints. It shouldn't be too difficult to track down. Hmm. It's well worth tracking down, though. The elder Kate Pride would, of course, go on to become Widget, the tiny robotic mascot of Excalibur. The last real Excalibur story, written and drawn by Alan Davis, was actually the wrap-up to this entire day's alternate timeline in the story Days of Future Yet to Come. But if you've not read Track Down the Story Down, Excalibur issues 66 through 67, I heartily recommend it. This was the blow-off to not only the day's story, but also the original concept of Excalibur. By the way, Megan was not a mutant. She was a fey furry folk, which matched her up perfectly with Captain Britain, in my mind. Are you saying Captain Britain's gay though, Luke. Them's fighting words. Avalanche can project seismic waves, I think. So he would be able to collapse the floor by projecting it. I'm not saying that he didn't. Right. I am arguing with the description of his powers in the comic did not match the visuals of his powers in the comic. 
I'm not saying that that's not what his powers are. I was arguing that the description didn't match the visuals, mm. wasn't that? Yeah. So I'm not saying that's not what he can't do, but I'm saying the words didn't match the pictures. Although, it is funny, Colossus's trick to defeat the Blob would not work if you read the Blob's earlier appearances. Unlike Colossus, is suddenly stronger than the Hulk, but I dig the Blob, so I'm probably a little more prone. I like the Blob. I think the Blob's funny. By the way, this burns on the back effect Wolverine's sense of smell, because now everything smells like burning back her. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Regarding the movie, I think you can do it because the film will have other films to build on, so you have plenty of space to introduce the concept, since all of the characters, save Guy Rich, are already well established. As they say, the past is prologue. After the high quality of first class, I am interested in days of future past. Keep up the good work, fellas, Luke. I'm semi, semi-interested in the days of future past movie. I think I'm... Uh I'm a bit soured on the fact Brian Singer came back and I know he's going to turn it into a Wolverine story and not a Kitty Pride story. Fair enough. And I just know it's just going to be lots of love fest letters to Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart (laughs) instead of actually, you know, telling the story. Because Magneto's burly in Days of Future Past. Yeah. The comic. You really think they're going to get Ian McKellen back for that? And he's all hyped up about... Yeah. Yeah. It's... There's no... So it's... It's not going to be Days of Future Past. The only thing that now is how much of a differential from Days of Future Past will it be to allow me to enjoy the film? Although he has consulted with Chris Claremont. Oh, has he actually yeah. done that? Right, okay. Chris Claremont said he has consulted with Brian Singer about the movie. So, fair enough. Finally, email tonight, Tom Panneries. Time travel gives me a headache. Hello, Leylands. Hello, Tom. I have a much shorter email for you this time as I just listened to your episode on Days of Future Past. Absolutely loved it and I have nothing to say except that you guys did an excellent job on an excellent story. Thank you, Tom. I'm not an expert. See what he did there? I did, That's yeah. right, yeah. So I actually don't know the entire story between the growing tension between John Byrne and Chris Claremont, and it was great to hear that, especially since I don't think I ever really noticed the kiss you mentioned. Your conversation about time travel and James Cameron got me to thinking. You're right, Terminator 2 completely contradicts the first movie, and we ignore that because it's a gorgeous movie, as well as ignore the fact that Top John is supposed to be ten years old in T2, but he's clearly older than that. Although I will say that you could do most of the plot if you got rid of the time travel. Have Sarah Connor bust out of the nut house, go after Miles Dyson in an effort to stop Skynet, whilst being chased down by the military or Cyberdyne or whomever. But then we wouldn't get morphing flaws. Look at it this way, at least it's a good sequel and decent movie franchise instead of what we got when someone decided the sequel to Highland it would be a good idea. <laughs> yeah, but Highlander TV series is better than the films. Hmm. I guess the future could technically exist because I've learned anything from decades of reading time travel stories in DC Comics. Going back to Alter the Future will work, but the future you left still exists because you've simply taken the timeline in another possible direction, time not being exactly linear and all. After reading this, though, I wanted it to be wiped out in the way that Martin McFly would have been wiped out if George hadn't kissed Lorraine at the gym at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, because that really actually happens in comics. We always need an open door for a crappy sequel. You mentioned going back again to stop yourself from doing whatever it is you first time, and of all people, Stephen King handled this brilliant in his novel 22nd of the 1163, which is about a man going back in time to stop the Kennedy assassination. I won't spoil it for you, entirely, but it's done in a way that is logical, clever, and, well, actually makes for a good ending to a Stephen King novel, which is pretty rare. I recommend picking up, it's a decent read. Thanks again for another stellar episode, keep up the good work, Tom. Does he turn out to be the assassin on the grassy knoll? You Stephen King! <laughs> that really would be a good twist on the storyline, wasn't it? I left um, my cars loose on them. <laughs> we're going to have to knock emails on the head there, because like I say, Michael has a life and has an elsewhere to be. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be right back with Acts of Vengeance, Cosmic Spider-Man. Not all of Acts of Vengeance. Not all of Acts of Vengeance, no. So if you're excited about that, I do apologise, we're just doing spider 
Listen to this trailer for what I'm sure is a fine podcast. You've decided to go to a nearby restaurant. You ask the hostess to seat you in a booth. As you sit, you notice an animated conversation among the four seated behind you. They're talking about Star Wars and Doctor Who and something called the Laugh Olympics. These are the people you used to pants in high school. And yet, you cannot help listening. Unable to tear your ears away, you realize you've just been sucked into the Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks, weekly at twotruefreaks.com. I'm sure it. I'm sure that was a fine trailer oh, yeah, for a was. fantastic podcast. But yeah. we're back, lovely, lovely, lovely listener. In January of 1983, DC Comics published an issue of The Brave and the Bold, issue 192, primarily a Batman team-up title co-starring The Flash and written by Mike W. Barr with art by Carmine Infantino. Entitled Trade Heroes and Win, in it the Rainbow Rider and Dr. Double X get this fantastic idea of swapping their regular adversaries, Batman and The Flash, with the notion that this will so confound the heroes that victory will be assured. It's a flawed idea, surely the hero will be just as much of an unknown quantity to the villains as vice versa, but it's a fun little tale, nothing more, nothing less. Needless to say, it doesn't quite pan out, and after 23 pages, all is right with the world. This is, essentially, the premise of Acts of Vengeance, the mighty Marvel crossover event of Christmas 1989. In it, as guardian trickster god Loki meets with the denizens of the Marvel underworld and convinces them that the reason they have lost all these years wasn't because they are incompetent or outclassed. No, it was because they fight the same people all the time, and as such, the heroes know their limits. If they were to, I don't know, trade heroes, then perhaps they could, and bear with me here, win. And thus it came to pass that the main Avengers titles hosted the bulk of the body of the storyline, with the rest of the Marvel Universe dragged along for the ride. Oddly, for a crossover of this magnitude, it did not have its own miniseries, but rather ran through nearly 70 issues of regular Marvel comics, with the X-Men, Spider-Man and others swept along in its wake. This was an unusual state of affairs for the X-Men, so used were they to being the instigators of the money-grabbing company-wide crossover, such as Mutant Massacre and Fall of the Mutants, and this was an attempt to see if the Avengers could play host to such a commercially successful party. It doesn't seem to have worked out terribly well, as after this, Marvel went straight back to producing events with the letter X in them, like Extinction Agenda and Executioner's Song. Nevertheless, the Acts of Vengeance crossover is fondly remembered, perhaps because it wasn't very good, and just recently had an omnibus published of all the issues. Two even. Two. Michael, he was informed me since I wrote this, yes, two omnibuses. Yeah. The Fantastic Four by Lee Kirby, not every single issue of that is out in omnibus format yet. No. But all of Acts of Vengeance is available in omnibus format. Yeah. Marvel have got the priorities. Absolutely. <laughs> the most fondly remembered part of the storyline, however, involves our friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man and the aptly named Cosmic Spidey storyline. Running across the main Spider-Man comics of the time, Amazing Spider-Man 326 through 329, Spectacular Spider-Man 158 through 160, and Web of Spider-Man 59 through 61, the story featured our red and blue clad hero imbued with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. When I looked this up, the internet told me that it actually started in Amazing Spider-Man 327, but in pulling the comics out of the boxes, I noticed that issue 326 also had an Acts of Vengeance banner on it, so I pulled that out as well. 
Entitled Gravity Storm, Beginning Acts of Vengeance, it was written by David Michelini, with art by Colleen Duran and Andy Mushinsky. Mushinsky. Mushy, mushy, mushy. Mushy, mushy. Mushy in, mushy in sky. Whatever. And it has to be said that it's an inauspicious start to the story and largely irrelevant. It's a lot of subplots and expository dialogue in search for an actual story. The reader spends the first half of the issue learning that Peter and his new wife, Mary Jane, have moved into a new apartment and that Mary Jane is still being stalked by Jonathan Caesar and that Peter's Aunt May's live-in lover, Nathan Lebensky, is terminal and therefore she has shut down her boarding house to care for him. The fact that Aunt May has a live-in lover is slightly disturbing. We learn that Flash Thompson is wandering aimless, his glory days behind him and that Changing nappies stinks thanks to Harry and Liz Osborne who've just birthed little Normie. We learn that Thomas Fireheart, aka Puma, has taken over the Daily Bugle as part of his debt of honour to Spider-Man, and we are set up with future plots at ESU where Peter is still studying as a research assistant, and he's been assigned to a grumpy new professor, Max Lubitsch, which I'm sure will lead to hijinks further down the road. It's somewhat of a relief, therefore, when halfway through the issue, Graviton... I'd never heard of him either. Having read some old issues of the Fantastic Four, levitates the Daily Bugle as part of the Kingpin's instruction to screw around with Spider-Man. Spider-Man is defeated easily and leaves dejected and alone, but when you have a hot, naked redhead in bed waiting for you, as Peter does at the climax of this story, it's not all bad. It's not an awful issue, by any means. Michelini throws in some nice sight gags. Peter's double take when he sees the bugle levitated above New York's skyline is genuinely funny. And there is some fun dialogue in between the exposition, but this really feels like all subplots accounted for for a good third of the issue before a brief and unspectacular fight scene. Duran is a good artist, completely unsuited to drawing the McFarlane knockoff I presume she was instructed to do here and the party scene at the top of the issue is hilarious in how dated the fashions are Mary Jane has huge hair looking more like Peggy Bundy than Kelly Brock and Peter seems to be wearing a Rabsy Nesbit string vest also no explanation is given to exactly what the acts of vengeance are did you bother reading this one? I did yeah what did you think of it? well it was just some plots until Graviton showed up I thought it would have been better if the entire issue was just a Daily Bugle hostage story. So, if the entire issue had taken place inside the Daily Bugle as it rose, yeah, and that would have been that probably would have been funnier, yeah. And they only saw Spider-Man from inside the windows, yeah. That probably would have been cool. But yeah, the, the fashion's pretty horrible. Oh like, god, the yeah. Dark Knight mutant in the background. Though. Yeah, there's a Dark Knight mutant in the background, except it's a girl. Yeah. And she's got Storm's mohawk, and um, she's wearing cycling shorts and a baggy jumper, which is, you know, a great look. It's a party. Yeah. Yet they're all drinking Coke. Yeah. Was this still approved by the Comics Code Authority, do you think? No, this was a Peter Parker party. Oh, right, yeah, because Peter Parker's a bit of a dullard, isn't he? Yeah, it also introduces the, the running subplot of Flash having irritating, politically correct girlfriends, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's not great, is it? No. Fair enough. The story kicks off properly in Spectacular Spider-Man issue 158, which we have here, dropping on September 26, 1989, with a December cover date. The non-mutant superhero stands facing the reader in a power pose, legs wide, arms flexing, fists clenched, as power rays emanate from his body. Pace Pot Pete sorry, the trapster, emerges from a doorway in between his legs and the cover is full of copy. Now the strongest hero in the Marvel Universe! It runs. This is it! Spidey goes cosmic! It 
runs up. The trapster really chose the wrong day to pick a fight. It continues to run, and with great power, it finally gives up on the runs. Good cover by Sal Buscema. Eye catching, but busy. I read all of them in William Dozier's voice. Yeah. What's next for the dynamic duo? Because they really are. That's what they are, isn't it? Next by the time. Next Next by the channel. (laughs) Do you like that cover? It's fine. It's functional, isn't it? Yeah. Does its job. Now, wrong with it. Everybody's being forced to draw McFarlane webbing at this point. Did you notice? Yeah. Even veterans like Sal Buscema. The Paste and the Power, or A Very Sticky Situation, was written by Jerry Conway, with breakdowns by Sal Buscema and finishes by Mike Osposito. Bob Sharon coloured, Rick Parker lettered, Jim Salakrup edited, and Tom DeFalco was editor-in-chief. Spidey's swinging through the crosstown traffic to meet his wife Mary Jane for lunch when he is attacked ruthlessly by, of all people, the Trapster. The Trapster manages to gain the upper hand through a continuous barrage of pace that binds Spider-Man from head to toe, causing him to crash to the floor of the restaurant he is meeting Mary Jane in. Unable to move or even talk, Spider-Man flails around and crashes through the window of the restaurant into the river where he sinks to the bottom. The trapster takes off gleefully. Mary Jane watches, panicked, as Spider-Man manages to flex off the now-hardened paste and reach the surface, gasping for air. The newlyweds catch each other's eyes, which is a neat trick when you're wearing a full face mask, and both head home for some afternoon delight. Meanwhile, the kingpin of crime, Wilson Fisk, is invited by a mysterious stranger, Loki in disguise... Which is not like robots in disguise, is it? No. Loki in disguise. Uh, To a meet and greet with Magneto, the wizard, and Doctor Doom, all of whom have agreed to the stranger's invitation to embark upon an act of vengeance on their respective adversaries. The trapster boasts of his recent defeat of Spider-Man, which, of course, the kingpin refuses to believe, but should it be true, he will collaborate. Doesn't seem to stop him collaborating that it's not true, does it? Mm. But anyway, at ESU, Peter is working with Professor Lubitsch on his experiment to tap into the vague unknown energy source. This being science in the Marvel Universe, it completely backfires, and Peter shoves Professor Lubitsch out of the way and takes the brunt of the backfire himself. He feels a little funky, but notices that outside the experiment has caused power lines to break and they are waving around like hungry eels. Switching to his costume, Spider-Man saves a few lives, but is hit full on by the brunt of the charge, and grounded as he is, he should be dead. He leaves to ponder but his spider sense goes wild, detecting everything around him and driving him mad. He tries to focus the power and locates the trapster looking for his body in the river. Driven by ego, Spider-Man challenges the trapster to a rematch where he crushes the trapster's attack missile with a giant web hand and then fires cosmic rays out of his fingertips destroying the trapster's paste pellets which engulf him in his own sticky goo. With the trapster taken out Spider-Man ponders this strange new turn of events. Quite a good beginning, mm-hmm. in many ways, I thought. Uh, page one has a splash page of Spider-Man being attacked by the trapster. It signifies the art in the book has been pretty bad. Sal Buscema has been penciling and inking his own work in this title for a while now, back in the late 190s through early 200s, and it showed off his art in a new and unique way. Not willing to be a McFarlane clone, Buscema produced some of the best work of his career when GM DiMatteis was writing. Using Mike Esposito as Inca, however, throws Buscema's work back ten years, and the result is a comic book that looks like it was produced a good decade before it actually was, especially since this was the creative team on Spectacular Spider when it started in 1976. Yeah, I thought it was another trying to be like McFarlane. He's not trying to be like McFarlane, because Buscema doesn't just follow the company line of you will draw oh, like McFarlane. It still looked like Buscema, but it also looked like McFarlane. I, I didn't... I thought the art in this looked 
incredibly dated for a book that was on the cusp of being 1990. Yeah. It looks like a 1970s Spider-Man comic. And that is all down to Mike Esposito's artwork. Mm. The later issue that we'll cover that is just Sal Buscema, and the times that we've covered Sal Buscema where he pencils and inks his own work, it doesn't look like this at all. And it looks really good. It doesn't look like 90s artwork, yeah. but that's not necessarily a bad thing. He's not aping Liffield or McFarlane. I just thought this, this was a throwback. Yeah. It looks like it could have been published in 1979, not 1989. And I think it didn't hurt the story, because the story is what the story is. Yeah. But it's, you know... I thought it was an unusual choice of creative team, perhaps fueled more by nostalgia mm. than actual ability. Ghostbusters 2, one of the many pop culture references throughout the series, normally from David Michelini, but this is Jerry Conway, uh, gets name-checked on page two and was, when this book was released, a new movie. Dates the comic horribly now, though, doesn't it? Oh, they couldn't have just said Ghostbusters. Well, that's... Ghostbusters 2. Yeah, ironically, if they'd said Ghostbusters, yeah. it wouldn't have dated as much. Because the first film has become a beloved classic that still gets referenced. Yeah. The second film, not, not so much. much. No, not not the same. Not the same um, love and reverence for Ghostbusters too. No. Uh, one of the best things about the Trapster is an inferiority complex and his hang-ups about his old name, Paste Pot Pete. It's nice to see that that character trait is still around. He hates being called Paste Pot Pete. Yeah. So of course, being Spider-Man, calls him Paste. You would call him Paste Pot Pete all the time, wouldn't yeah. you? <laughs> I thought the traps was pretty funny though. The, a bad guy that goes around shooting these sticky goo at people. And believe me, we've got a lot of mileage out of that gag <laughs> over on Fantastic Cast. The white sticky goo that he shoots from the hip <laughs> that splurts all over your face, neck, and chest. And then it crusts so. Oh, he is arguably the grossest villain in <laughs> comics, isn't he? Yeah. In fact. The, tri- the Trapster is a lame B-list villain. Always has been, probably always will be. And yet he almost kills Spider-Man. Yeah, this is an actually a very effective attack yeah. on Spider-Man. He attacks from, un- from out of nowhere. He pursues the attack relentlessly and does not let up, defeating Spider-Man relatively easily mm. by just pressing his advantage. And it's, it's arguably the way that this should go down. Spider-Man wasn't prepared for this. The Trapster attacks him and just keeps pounding on him until he wins. I bought this. Yeah. I did read a review, maybe on Spider-Fan, because I always do a little bit of research on the story, where they thought that there's no way the Trapster could take down Spider-Man. But my reading of these first six pages or so was that the attack was so relentless and so quick, Yeah. Spidey was like, what the hell's going on? Before he could do anything about it. But which made sense. Because it only goes off, though, just after he gets hit. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. The trapster attacks and doesn't let up. The spider sense doesn't work if the trapster's just on a building, just minding his own business. Yeah. The spider sense works when Spider-Man is under direct threat. Although that has been contradicted in any number of stories. Like, suddenly the spider sense will work when somebody that he's friends with is under direct threat. So... I don't think Marvel has ever really decided how the Spider-Sense works, no. but that was always my interpretation of it. When yeah. he's under a direct threat, his Spider-Sense tells him about it. And it's just enough of an early warning system with his reflexes that he can avoid whatever the threat is. Because here, he does avoid it on the splash page. Yeah. He does manage to get out of the way of the first barrage of attacks. It's only later on when he doesn't let up 
that he slipped so. up. Yeah, so I bought this. I thought this was perfectly acceptable. Well, one note we should make, this was the time period when Marvel were numbering every single page, not just the page in the comic. So even though it's page six, it's only really page five of the story. Mm. But we're going off the page numbers in the comic. Hopefully that won't cause too much confusion. Spider-Man crashes into the restaurant Mary Jane is waiting for him in. Coincidence? Um, or an effective way of bringing MJ into the story. Because yeah. he was heading for this restaurant. Yeah. So it's not like he is... If all the restaurants in New York... He's not crashed through the window of the one Mary Jane happened to be in. Yeah. The trapster, the trapster has attacked him outside of the restaurant that he was going to. So not a coincidence. Not one of those phenomenal coincidences that a writer will have to come along 20 years' time and retcon because it didn't work for him. Yeah. Yeah. I actually thought this was quite a horrific little scene. Mary Jane essentially watches her husband die and can do nothing about it. And Conway milks it for all it's worth when Spider-Man plummets into the river and Mary Jane's like, come on, Peter. Come on. I like that bit. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a good little scene. Page eight. Spider-Man, water, an impossible situation. We've been here before, haven't we? Mm. So this is a homage to that? It could be. Not quite as effective. No, no, no. But it does the job. There's a lot more paste and a lot less metal yeah. doors. <laughs> the principle's the same thing. It was good. I, I quite like the opening to this issue. I thought it was really good. Do you know what I did love about it? We got some lovely characterisation from Mary Jane's waiter pal. Yeah. In very little screen time. He's a waiter who wants to be an actor who's given up because it's like, I can't get any gigs, I'm just going to be a waiter. And he realises, like, if Spider-Man doesn't quit, then I don't quit. Mm. And I quite liked that. As we pointed out a couple of episodes ago, throw throw, an, throw a coin yeah, I was at a restaurant. Well, maybe he's, he's going to be a theatre actor, darling. Ah. And then after ten years in the theatre, he'll go to LA and he'll sell out and make crap action movies for Michael Bay. And then he'll go back to the theatre and then he'll moan that there isn't enough high art like Stephen Burkoff does. Ah, okay. Stephen Burkoff, who appeared in Rambo First Blood Part 2. But there's not enough high art oh, in no. the world. Thanks for that, Stephen. Uh, Peter's humiliation after being beaten by the trapster is well handled, as is Murray Jane and Spider-Man being able to communicate without speaking. Husband and wives can do that kind of thing. Again, I was more impressed that Peter can do it through a full face mask. <laughs> but, okay, whatever. Um, Peter and MJ head home for some afternoon husband and wife fun. It's subtle, but it's yeah. there. It's a lot more subtle than having Mary Jane parade around in a towel. This time it's Peter who's parading around in a towel. Mm -hmm. That's fair enough. Equality of the sexes. Yeah. You know, I'll fire it. Um, one and a half pages on page 13 through 14 are devoted to the main crossover, and we're told the premise without interrupting the flow of the story. Gotta say, the art on Doctor Doom is god-awful. There's also a minor continuity error. Graviton last issue said the Kingpin had contacted him about these acts of vengeance. But here, the Kingpin's only just finding out about it. Yeah. Which I thought was a bit strange. But yeah, look at Doctor Doom. Doctor Doom's awful. I don't know. I think he's one of the best looking ones, though. That's not a glowing endorsement, because Magneto's <laughs> terrible. Oh, yeah. He's only going to get worse, though. Mm, yeah, the art's not great. I thought the bits for the supervillains were the best bits in the issue. Yes, the Doctor Doom steals this entire crossover. Yeah. But we'll get to that as, as Doom appears more. Pages 15 through 16 is all subplots accounted for. Dealing with Robbie Robertson on trial for murder due to something to do with Tombstone. I don't quite remember. 
the time period. I know Robbie was in jail for a crime he didn't commit, presumably. We get the experiment scene on pages 17 through 19. It's fun in that Marvel Comics does science kind of way. Once again, a noted scientist, in this case Dr. Max Lubitsch, just runs his experiment without checking all the data and it backfires. Kel surprise. Mm-hmm. I did like that Peter was smart enough to see this coming and acted accordingly. Also, as per the rules of the Marvel Universe, the experiment goes awry and Peter, in being heroic, is rewarded with superpowers. He gets hit, hit by radioactive cosmic. Cosmic rays. Yeah. Yes. Well, the Marvel Universe has symmetry, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the back half of the issue is actually really good. Spider-Man realising he should have died saving the kids is well done, but the moment where his spider sense allows him to zero in on everything in the Marvel Universe reminds me of the scene in the Clash issue of Superman. It was number 10, wasn't it? Don't. We covered it as part of Happy Birthday Superman. Where Superman's powers allow him to hear everything in the DC Universe at once. Spider-Man seems to recover quicker than Superman, though. Yeah. Superman has that whole... Ah! moment and Spider-Man's like right filter everything out maybe that's the scientist part of his brain or maybe Spider's just better than Superman possibly yeah. that's a fight for another day mm. I suspect the scene is good not as good as what follows uh, driven by ego the traps to tuck Peter down in front of Mary Jane which you know it's, 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 he can't handle that mm-hmm. he's not having that Pete seeks out the traps from picks a fight I did like that the waiter from earlier on is still at work and watching. Some things here are a little bit silly. The Trapster's costume, which we haven't mentioned so far, is terrible. It's a purple boiler suit with a Roman helmet. Huge yellow shoulder pads that are actually paste canisters, which is okay, I suppose. But he has extra canisters around his wrists and ankles. I get the ones around his wrist... Yeah. What are the ones around his ankles going to do? Unless the, the things on his back are linked to everything. So he's got cables into the paste pot tubes on his back linked to the bandolier and the wrists and the ankles. Maybe. Which doesn't look like it's the case, but it's possible, I suppose. Or it, maybe they're just fashion accessories. Maybe. Although why you would dress like that as a fashion statement, I really don't know. Because let's be honest, that's a terrible costume. Purple's the new red and blue. <laughs> well, the, the Frightful Four always had a thing for purple. Yeah. So, you know. Maybe it gets discount on purple in the Marvel it's Universe. It's a secondary colour, yeah. <laughs> Bruce Banner gets discount on purple pants. Yeah. Maybe the Trapster gets discount on purple boiler suits. Same shop. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Same shop. We <laughs> call it Purple Pros. It's purple stuff. <laughs> and it's run by the Purple Man. <laughs> purple pants are us. Um, he presses a button and a rocket fires from inside his van. I don't know why he had a rocket there. I want to know how it opened the doors <laughs> rather than blowing them off. Well, this guy's so they're so sure he killed Spider-Man, he has to bring a rocket in a van with it. In a van Just with to it. make sure. Yes, yeah. That didn't make a great deal of sense, that. So he's driving around New York with a rocket in the back of his van. Yeah. That's got to be against some kind of law, even for the trapster. What if someone accidentally clips him? Yeah, boom! <laughs> All those movies were right. We are driving around in combustible cars. He's just blown up an entire block, though. Well, he's a trapster. Perhaps he didn't care, except if he was in the van, he'd be dead as well. Yeah. So that didn't, didn't make any sense whatsoever, did it? Unless he got someone else to drive the van. Possibly. So there's a poor guy he employs to drive around with a bomb in the back or of a maybe van. maybe there was another rocket that... that <laughs> The van. <laughs> is the economy that bad that people will accept jobs driving bombs yeah alright fair enough 
Spider-Man catches the rocket in a web hand, similar to how the Green Lantern does stuff with his ring, and he then just crushes it, and it doesn't go boom. It doesn't explode on impact. No. So I didn't, I didn't understand that. Uh, the cosmic powers. The cosmic powers the deactivate the bomb. Yeah. An excellent no-price theory. Right. I am down with that theory. Excellent. Spider-Man then fires beams from his fingertips at the trapster and explodes all of his pace canisters all over him. And it's it's remarkably silly, sticking him to the pier. Spider-Man taunts him as much as Spider-Man always does. And it's silly, yes, but it's quite a lot of fun yeah. as well. I quite enjoyed it. There's a believability to this, as usual for the Spider-Man strip. Spider-Man is actively terrified of what's happening to him. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain element of, yes, this is ridiculous, but the character is acknowledging that it's ridiculous and he's not enjoying it that makes you buy into it. I did want to know if Peter's firing his laser blasts through his fingers, why is it not burning his gloves? I thought that was a bit powers. of verisimilitude that they could have got some mileage out of. Yeah. Spider-Man going, oh, now I'm going to make a new pair of gloves as well to add insult to injury. And especially seeing as what happens later on, he finds out that his cosmic powers will let him make fabric. Yeah. So, perhaps it was fixing it without him knowing it. Yeah. That works, doesn't it? That was a no prize. I want to know how uh, all the paste exploding over Paste Pot Pete, he doesn't, it doesn't cover his face. Because if you notice, it just misses. Yeah, it explodes all over him, but it misses his face so he can breathe. So the bad guy lives. Spider Man's not a killer. That's why. Yeah, but he he wasn't going to. It would have been. He wasn't directly killing him. Well, what he could have done is just stuck his finger in his mouth while the paste hardened, and then he had a hole to breathe through. Okay. That's what I would have done. You don't want to kill the trapster. You know, he's not an A-list villain. He still wants to laugh at. Yeah, that's, that's true. Acts of vengeance so serious it has the trapster in it. <laughs> and grab it on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this was an okay first issue for the crossover. Little attention is paid to the main storyline running through the Avengers, which is as it should be for readers of Spider-Man only. And this slots in with the ongoing narrative of the Spider-Man books whilst accommodating the corporately mandated money grab. There is the requisite attention paid to the Spider-Man subplots and story arcs, but some of this feels quite clunky by today's standards. And what's amazing to me is this really feels like a late 70s issue of Spider-Man, rather than the more sophisticated writing that Roger Stern brought to it. And I think a lot of that is down to the creative team of Conway, Buscema and Desposito, who were the creative team that launched this title back in the 70s. Still, it does what it set out to do, and it does it adequately. Clunky, yes, fun also. Yeah. There's a couple of good ads in this book. He has one night to find out who killed him. Incredible Hulk 364 through 367. Countdown by Peter David, Jeff Purvis and Marie Severin. Which was an interesting little story out from Peter David. And there is a comics advert. None of them are hot. Because we're not into the 90s yet, but well, very nearly. It's holiday special, so it'll be cool. Yes, they will. It's, it is a holiday special. will be delivered by Christmas, yeah. What are, the, what are they plugging here? Batman Arkham Asylum. New violent hardcover. Pits Joker and inmates of Arkham versus Batman. Lavishly painted. 1999. Yes. Yeah. Batman, Legends, Dark Knight. Couldn't even be bothered putting the full <laughs> title. By popular demand, the first new Batman in years. A new monthly series on deluxe paper with darker, harder-hitting stories. A must-have. 50p bins now. Yeah. 
they had day glow covers as well. They had four different colours to represent the four different colours of comic. Punisher Quartz Watch, which actually sounds pretty cool. The ultimate gift, apparently. The deadly Punisher skull on a stylish black Seiko Quartz watch. 1995. I'd actually have that. I think that sounds pretty good. Wolverine and Nick Fury, an all-new hardcover graphic novel pitting Wolverine and Nick Fury against Scorpio. Incredible art by Howard Chaikin. Recommended sale price, 1495. That is the Scorpio Connection, which I have on my bookshelf, which I got in Florida last year for $5. Yeah. I haven't read it yet. Fair enough. But apparently, it's recommended. Yeah, so I must by the holiday special. By the holiday special of what is this company? American Entertainment, right? Uh, mostly it's plugging stuff for the Batman movie, an awful lot of stuff. For the Batman movie, I do like that of the deluxe books. The first one is Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah, <laughs> that was quite funny. But the rest of it, yeah, t-shirts, games, calendars, posters, blah blah, nothing of great interest. Comics, grab bag. Oh, there's a Future Past gets a bookshelf reprint for $4, mm-hmm. which was the one I had that had the page missing. Just for the record, that picture of Batman they used was pretty awful. You don't even see Batman. Yeah, it's Batman pulling his, his mask down over his face. Colour it red, it could be Daredevil. Yeah. It was absolutely appalling. But no, not a bad little comics advert. The, the precursor to the hot comics ads of the 90s. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the issue, Michael? I thought it was fun. That's pretty much it. Is that all you've got? Yeah. yeah it was all right. <laughs> you've gone into this going, this is going to be dopey but fun. Because that's what you actually said to me. Yeah. Which is fair enough. The story continued in Web of Spider-Man 59 with a cover by Alex Saviuk. Look out! Here comes the all-new Cosmic Spider-Man! Screams the cover. And it has a word balloon which were raw, even back in the late 80s. Titania, leave Puma alone! I'm the one you want! <laughs> Spider-Man bursts through the doors of the bugle as Titania throttles Puma. Do you like me grease reference? Very funny. <laughs> It was funny in that way that made you go, dear God, he's just referenced Grease. Oh, it's just the singing. <laughs> Reference whatever you like, just... It's had a few weeks after. Yeah. Uh, it's okay, isn't it, as a cover? It's nothing special. I think it's pretty funny when you look at these speech bubbles. Titania, trademark. Leave <laughs> trademark. <laughs> Do you know I had not noticed that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah Spider-Man apparently isn't trademarked. Oh no, but Acts of Vengeance is in the Acts of Vengeance is trademarked. Yeah. Very strange. Did I not notice that? That's that's brilliant. Um came out on October third, nineteen eighty nine, was entitled With Great Power. The writer was Jerry Conway, the penciler was Alex Saviok, the inker was eight Keith Williams, the letter was Rick Parker, the colorist was Bob Sharon, Salakrup and DeFalco were the editors. Spidey exposits on the events of last issue and then takes off for a meeting at the Bugle. In the meantime, Titania is speaking with Doom, wanting to be part of these acts of vengeance which he's heard about somewhere. Kingpin. Yeah, probably. He's got a big mouth, hasn't he? (laughs) Doom manipulates Titania perfectly thanks to a control device he secretes under her collar, making Titania succumb to Doom's wishes, and Doom sends her after Spider-Man despite her psychological fear of the web-slinger. Doom cares not for Titania or her problems. Doom cares only for power. And Spider-Man has recently become infused with power, and Doom craves this. For is this not the ultimate destiny of Doom? At the Bugle, Thomas Fireheart, the new owner, spells out the new direction for the paper, and there is some banter between the employees, Kate Cushing, Peter Parker, Joy Mercado, and Nick Katzenberg. But Peter's spider sense kicks in as Titania does the same to the office doors. She trashes the room and Peter takes off, but before he can do anything, Thomas Fireheart, a.k.a. Puma, trademarked, transforms and attacks Titania, trademarked. She chucks him out of a window. 
Unfortunately, Spider-Man has made the scene and he stops Puma from becoming kibbles and bits and dives straight into the fight. No matter what Titania throws at him or throws him off, including a 30-story fall, crushed under masonry or smashing into a car, Spider-Man shrugs it all off, but Puma, recovered, still intervenes, quoting his debt of honour to Spider-Man. Titania owns him, but not before Puma manages to tear off the device Doom planted on Titania earlier to maintain control. Doom is surprised, therefore, when Titania overcomes her fear of the wall crawler and pounds him into the pavement. Doom is intrigued by how long Spider-Man will take the punishment before unleashing his own supreme power, and Doom surmises that Spider-Man is afraid of that power. But even the best of men have a breaking point, and Spider-Man reaches his to Doom's gratification and Titania's displeasure, opening up with full-power cosmic blast that hurls Titania across the street and renders her unconscious. Spider-Man ponders the events and senses danger, but is unable to pinpoint it. And across town, watching dispassionately, Doom plots. As he always does. As he always does. Um, the opening to the issue made very little sense. Peter's hanging around on a rooftop for over an hour with his mask off, but his yeah. costume on. Yeah. Isn't New York like, full of really tall skyscrapers and helicopters and planes yep. that could have spotted him? So that made not a lot of sense to me. And then he spends some more time telling MJ stuff she already knows from the issue we've just covered of Spectacular Spider-Man, but recapped, obviously, for readers who only buy web of, and then leaves for a meeting that takes place in ten minutes, pointing out that Thomas Fireheart hates tardiness. So let me just reiterate, he's hung around on a rooftop for an hour, brooding, yet now he's going to be late for a meeting. Yeah. What a numpty. Why did he not go earlier, get a coffee, and, and sit brood. in the Bugles building and brood, and then he'd have been on time for his meeting? And could brood. And could still brood, yes. On because, the other hand, that's you know, a pretty cool page. It is. Alex Saviak's a pretty good artist. He had a good run as an artist on Spider-Man at this time and drew the newspaper strip. He's a good, solid artist. He doesn't seem to be doing a bad McFarlane impersonation. So more power to him. Is Murray Jane... Especially, I mean, she's only wearing a sleeping t-shirt here. She's an awful lot sexier than the more overt, sexy Murray Jane depictions we see from Eric Larson and Todd McFarlane. She looks like an attractive young woman, though. Larson and Drawer were wearing some stupid clothes, but we'll yeah. mention some of them later on. If we ignore the recap stuff, the scene between Peter and Mary Jane at the top of the issue is really good. Conway's dialogue between the two is nice, and Peter being scared of his new powers and what they mean is well handled. It still didn't make a lot of sense, though. There's a a very Ramita senior influence to Saviuk's art, especially when he draws Mary Jane, isn't there? Yeah. And I do like that Mary Jane has been drawn with a different hairdo. She's not just got the bangs that Ramita drew, drew her with. She's actually got a very stylish, swished flicked hairdo in this comic Eric Larson should have looked at this before he drew Amazing Spider-Man her that changes in every issue yeah her that changes yeah throughout the storyline we should have charted the many hairstyles of Mary Jane yeah that would have been quite interesting Uh, Saviak's Doctor Doom however isn't wonderful it's better than Buscema and Esposito in the last issue but it's still not prime A-grade Doom. Doom himself, however, is magnificently characterised by Conway. He's manipulative, scheming, conniving, happy to have the underlings do all the dirty work whilst planning three steps ahead of everyone else. Mm-hmm. Prime Doom, oh, yeah. in other words. Here he's not interested that Titania has issues with Spider-Man, or arguably even interested in the acts of vengeance per se. He wants this new power. 
and this is all just a part of the plan to get it. This plays in wonderfully with the Doctor Doom that has already tasted the power cosmic way back in Fantastic Four issue 60, where Doom stole that power from the Silver Surfer. And the underlying subtext here is having tasted it once, he wants it back. I like how um, just because there's power, it rightfully belongs to him. Of course it does. Yeah. Doom's ultimate destiny is power. For that is the ultimate destiny of Doom. Mm -hmm. I love Doctor Doom in this story. Whether it's magical power or scientific power, he can never make his mind up. Well, he's achieved political power. Yeah. Because he's the ruler of a country and has diplomatic immunity. Mm -hmm. So his next step in that goal... I mean, in in the Spider-Man... Batman... Spider-Man Batman. Spider-Man Superman crossover. He wanted power, didn't he? He was happy to steal the Parasite's power. But it's not really what he was after, but... But it's the ultimate destiny of Doom, as he keeps mentioning oh, yeah. throughout over, the story. Again. Doom is wonderful throughout the scene with Titania. There's some good continuity, not referenced in the notes for some reason, from Secret Wars, where Doom gave Titania her powers, and her fear of Spider-Man after he defeated her in battle on the Beyonders world. He's patronising to her when he points out she's missing the point of the acts of vengeance, Titania wanting to go after She-Hulk. Andy sends to turn you after Spider-Man, not curring if she succeeds or fails. Because that's not what he wants. He doesn't cur. He wants more intel on what Spider-Man's new power set is. It's really good. Titania is a bit of a one-note character, though. She's not very bright, is she? Oh, no. Which makes her, you know, ripe for Doctor Doom to manipulate her. Absolutely fantastic stuff. If Doctor Doom was the kingpin instead of kingpin. New York would now be quivering under his boot. Yeah. In my opinion. He should have been doing that then. Yeah. He would have gotten his power there. Well, he's not really interested in petty thuggery though, is he? That's not what Doom's into. No, but look where Kingpin is. Doom doesn't care about drug dealing and stuff like that. Doom's above all of that. But if he was, he'd have power. But it's not the kind of power that he wants. Doom craves absolute power. And it's already corrupted him, absolutely. Kudos to Conway. The Daily Bugle scene is full of great dialogue, none of which is forced or bad. Thomas Fireheart has bought the Bugle as part of a debt he owes to Spider-Man, whom he knows is Peter Parker, and he's using it as a pro-Spider-Man rag, as opposed to Jonah's anti-Spider-Man rag. There's some good dialogue at the expense of this, with Nick, with Kate Cushing pointing out that this is just as biased as Jonah. John Mercado and Peter tease Nick Katzenberg about his crush on Robbie's lawyer, and Saviak's art has a Ramita senior feel without being a pastiche, particularly on the women, which all look very Ramita senior, not just Mary Jane, like we mentioned earlier on. Puma first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man 256, written by Tom DeFalco and drawn by Ron Friends. Native American Thomas Fireheart can morph into the enhanced life-form Puma and started as a Spider-Man adversary before becoming a kind of ally. As far as I know, he's not being killed, reduced to B-list status, or defiled in some way. So he's escaped the chromium age relatively unscathed. Mm -hmm. I quite like Puma as a character. Okay. I was always quite fond of him. I liked the, that he was very ambiguous. And I like that his, his metamorphosis is not brought on by anything other than he can control it. Yeah. So he's not like Morbius or the Incredible Hulk. I quite liked him. I often thought he'd, he'd have been very good in his own series. But in the 90s it probably would have been crap. Could which is a shame. I like Puma. I always like Puma. a private detective by day but a Puma <laughs> by night. Well no, he runs his own business so he's kind of like Tony Stark. So there's all that stuff that you could play with him. He could have become a player in the Marvel Universe as a rival for Tony. Yeah. Which I, I thought would have been would have been quite an interesting direction to take him into. Or he could have taken over Obadiah Stane Industries. 
yeah. which would have given him more power, as well as owning Fireheart Industries or whatever the hell he owned. But no, he's Puma. Let's laugh at him. He's not. Why would you laugh at him? Um, because he's the character who, in the 90s, would have been laughed at. Yeah. He's very similar to Morbius, only Morbius is still around. Well, Puma's still around. As far as I know, Puma was in Avengers vs. X-Men crossover somewhere. I don't think we covered it, but he was around. Anyway. Uh, The fight scene that takes over the last entire half of the issue is very well done. Titania's a brawler, and just how powerful she is is demonstrated by her taking out Puma twice in quick succession. So maybe you're right, maybe we're just laughing at it. Yeah. Spider-Man is essentially a punching bag for most of this issue, terrified to use his new powers. But when he does we get an absolutely wonderful Ditko-esque splash page of Spider-Man cutting loose and pushing Titania across the street and into a truck with one cosmic blast. The real star of the issue, though, is Doom. Mm. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, Doom's absolutely fantastic. Again, it's a good, solid issue. It's better than the first one, on a par with the second one, actually taking the premise and doing something cool with it. Spidey has no idea what's going on either with his powers or with the overall story arc, and Doom is magnificent throughout. The biggest surprise for me in this issue, though, the United States got Count Duckula. Okay. <laughs> Duckula. I wouldn't have thought that that would have travelled. Does that mean they got Danger Mouse as well? They might have. Do, 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 do. I liked Count Duckula. I thought Count Duckula was always quite fun. What do you think of that one? Oh, it was good. Excellent, good. <laughs> I, I like I like seeing Spidey's powers progress instead of just coming on at once. This, this yeah, he's good. learning them slowly, and he is getting to the point where he starts thinking, "I've got no limits." Yeah, and that's what's scurring him, which I quite like. Absolute liked. power, absolute power corrupts, and absolutely. Uh, we've covered the three main books of this time period. The interesting thing about this is they all still had corner boxes. Yeah, I used to love the Marvel comics corner boxes. All three of them are different. Which is nice. The Amazing Spider-Man has a McFarlane Spidey upside down. Spectacular Spider-Man has what looks like a Ramita Spider-Man running at us. Kind of like Spider-Man's Amazing Friends. And Web of Spider-Man has what looks like a Ramita Spider-Man swinging. They're all great. All absolutely fantastic. I miss the old Spectacular Spider-Man one where it's Peter Parker taking his mask off. Yeah. That was my favourite Spider-Man corner box for Spectacular Spider-Man. But the book is no longer called Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man. So perhaps he felt that. Yeah. It's just called the Spectacular Spider-Man. Yes. Amazing Spider-Man 327 was the next chapter of the story, dropping on October 10th, 1989, with a cover by Eric Larson and Al Gordon. You'll believe a spider can fly, says the cover copy, and to prove the point, the non-mutant cosmic superhero is flying around over the city engaged in a battle with Magneto. And the cover lies to us by telling us Spidey makes mincemeat out of Magneto. They don't actually have a long fight scene, do they? In fact, Spider-Man ignores him for most of the issue. For most of the issue, yeah. So that's, that's... Kind of a lie, isn't it? Yeah. Cover lies to me, shocker! That, I thought it would have been a spoiler anyway. And it would have been a spoiler had that happened, yeah. Yeah. So either way, they should have just got rid of that. Well, it would have been a spoiler if it was DC. Would it? Why? Because DC liked to ruin all those stories. In the solicitations. Of release, but yeah. Marvel do that as well. To be fair, if they think they can get some ink in um, New York Post or the Daily <laughs> Times or whatever it is, they'll, they'll ruin the stories for you. It's a solid cover. I don't know if it's the artist or the colourist decision to have Spider-Man's costume be more red and black than red and blue, but I really do like it. 
Larson will do that an awful lot in the issue itself. I also like that the barcode has been replaced by a Spider-Man headshot on this comic that isn't the standard Spider-Man headshot that was on the previous three issues. Yeah. I quite like that. I thought that was quite cool. There's still a UK price on this. Comics were 60 pence uh, in this issue which is just over a 50% price increase on when I started buying them regularly seven years earlier. So comics, for all the bitching and moaning we do about pricing, they yeah. were always rising in price above the rate of inflation. Because mm. that's a 50% increase on when I started buying them. More than a 50% increase. Uh, Cunning Attractions. I like what they did there, with the title. Uh, was written by David Michelini, penciled by Eric Larson, inked by Al Gordon, lettered by Rick Parker, Bob Sharon was a colorist, Jim Salakrup was apparently the father figure, Tom DeFalco was the grandfather figure. Uh, Spider-Man demonstrates his new powers to Mary Jane, including an ability for his webbing to obey his mental commands. Peter frets some more about his new abilities, but Mary Jane says they must have happened for a reason. She doesn't know whose reason or what that reason is, but it's not to score touchdowns. They head over to watch Flash in the gym. I don't know about you, but I can't think of a worse way of spending the afternoon than watching Flash Thompson pump iron, but whatever. Elsewhere, the rogues, the kingpin, the wizard, Doctor Doom and Magneto ponder the Spider-Man situation, and Magneto decides to take direct action. Spider-Man, meanwhile, after checking the equipment that boosted his powers, decides to take them for a spin. He power blasts a stack of condemned cars at the scrapyard and lifts a barge, making it pretty easy for Magneto to find him. They engage in fisticuffs, which essentially consists of Magneto being all superior and Spider-Man handling everything Magneto throws at him. During the altercation, however, Spider-Man bats a car thrown at him into the bay and later realises the car has hit a cruise ship. He decides to help, but when his webs can't reach that far, he decides he'd fly. Yes, Spider-Man can fly. Spidey manages to save the occupants of the ship and Magneto leaves dissatisfied that Spider-Man isn't a mutant. Spider-Man, meanwhile, can't help but wonder what on earth is going on. Uh, Larson's art is up and down throughout the entire issue. Compared to Saviuk, his Mary Jane is awful. Badly proportioned with huge hair, a bobble head and tiny feet. She wears some dreadful clothes for a fashion model that are hugely unflattering. But his Peter Parker Spider-Man is spot on. Excellent exaggerated anatomy without being ridiculous like McFarlane would become. There's a Ditko-esque feel to Larson's Spider-Man that's simply wonderful. In fact, in every other respect, Larson's art is great. He draws a magnificent Doctor Doom, Magneto and Wizard, although his kingpin's a little too large. As with the last issue, it's Doom that rules here. His plans have nothing to do with the acts of vengeance, and he's already plotting Magneto's downfall, should they come into conflict. Mm. What do you think of his Murray Jane? What the hell has I she got on there? That was pretty awful. All the way generally. I just didn't like I mean, it felt like it was trying to be McFarlane, but at least with McFarlane is he's good at what he's doing. Even though he's not a particularly great artist in and of himself. Yeah, this just feels like it's not a very good McFarlane clone. See, I love I like his Peter Parker Spider Man. I mean if you look at panel three on page two, panel four is Spider Man. That's very Ditko on page three, the first panel. I like his Ditko-infused Spider-Man, but I do get the idea that they were being editorially mandated yeah. to make him draw webs like McFarlane did. And it suits some artists and doesn't suit others. But his Murray Jane's got awful. Her hips, I, I, I don't want to know what they are. She looks bumpy. She's got high-waisted jeans on, and by high, I mean they're almost underneath her breasts. She's got a... A top on 
with ties all down it, like an Indian moccasin thing. She's got boots that come up to her knees, but her feet are tiny feet. Liffield Little tiny Liffield feet. And a bobble head, where her hair is twice the size of her head. Yeah. It's a Murray, he's Murray Jane, he's god awful. And her boots change colour on the next page for some reason. For some reason she's wearing red boots, but she was wearing brown. Fashion change. Fashion change in between, because she puts them back at being brown letter. She does an Axel Rose change. Does she? Yeah, like, he changed his clothes five times in one song. No, I think his Murray Jane's awful. But alright, fair enough. In his old subplots account for segment, Flash at this point is wandering aimless and has now decided to be a boxer. Have I mentioned how little I care about the Flash Thompson subplot? You might have done. His kingpin there looks really bad. Yeah, well, his kingpin seems influenced by Bill Sinkovich. His kingpin's just huge, but his I, Doctor Doom's brilliant. Yeah. Flash Thompson has a new girlfriend in this issue. He seems to be having a rotating door of girlfriends throughout Which this entire run. Murray Jane points out. Yeah. This one's called Blaze. Not the out-and-out hippie that Sam was in the last issue. More of a free spirit, Yeah, I think is the word we're looking for, to put it politely. Uh, as she flirts with Flash and Peter. Mary Jane sets her straight, mm-hmm. which I thought was, was quite neat. But no, I, I really don't care about seeing Flash Thompson boxing. I really don't care about seeing Flash Thompson dressed only in a pair of speedos. <laughs> I've, I've, I've no interest. As soon as he gets sent back into the army. Yeah, well, as soon as he becomes Venom, he becomes interesting again, doesn't he? Yeah. Which is quite good. Uh, Magneto alights in Central Park and his reaction of the people in the park to him is hysterical. One man calls him out on his choice of attire. And has his head crushed by his Walkman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Magneto just crushes his headphones. <laughs> that made me laugh. <laughs> oh, I love bad guys when they're pissy. Another just decides to leave rather than sit in the park with him. Again, it's a single mum, by all accounts. Oh no, it doesn't say she's a single mum, it just says she's a housewife, so she's out pushing a baby either way. What the hell is she wearing? She's got a very, very, very mini skirt on. Showing fishnet stockings and boots that come up to her knees, so the go-go boots came back in. Mm-hmm. I don't really have a problem too much with that. She's got a blonde mohawk. You know who she looks like? Who does she look like? Magpie from DC. Yeah, you're absolutely right. She shaved the sides of her head and has a mohawk running down the middle of it. My God, the 80s were awful, <laughs> weren't they? I mean, we're on the cusp of the 90s at this point, but that's surely still an 80s fashion mistake of the highest order. I did think it a bit odd that all the uh, occupants of Central City didn't recognise Magneto. Because yeah. it's not like he's camera shy. Oh, no. He's on the news quite a lot. He's just sitting there, though. He's not doing it. Yeah, I thought that was hysterical. Magneto sat in Central Park, just enjoying the day. I thought Magneto was pretty useless in this. He doesn't <laughs> do anything. He's like, well, Spidey's got these powers, so maybe he's a mutant. So I'll fly around uh, New York and think about it. But then, it's, the answer's not coming to me, so I'll sit down in Central Park and think about it some more so I might go and fight Spider-Man to see if he really is a mutant <laughs> but no I won't fight him because he might be a mutant oh, that would end badly for me what's that Spider-Man wants to run away well I guess I could just sit here and watch him fly away <laughs> so basically you're saying Magneto's crap yeah in this issue. he's just in this issue because it's Magneto there's a great shot on page 11 though of Peter Parker Spider-Man Mm. Um, typical Ditko pose of half Peter, half Spider-Man as Peter investigates and then learns there's nothing special in the equipment he was using that would have given him these new powers. 
Lubish is back to being an arrogant get again, after being almost tolerable in the last story. Uh, and this is really a problem throughout all his appearances. Lubich is such a broad character, he has to be up to no good, doesn't he? Yeah. There's no subtlety in his character at all. He doesn't want Peter as his lab assistant. Yeah. Which begs the question, why the hell is Peter his lab assistant? Yeah. I know Dr. Swan, who Peter is working with, has said, go and be Max's lab assistant. But if Peter went back to him and said, look, he doesn't want me, and I don't want to be there. Yeah. Problem solved. It's not like he's been paid. Mm-hmm. So this is a subplot that was just largely irritating to him. The scene in the scrapyard was fun, though, with Spider-Man cosmically destroying cars. I thought that was quite fun. And I like the art, though. Do you not like that? Do you not like the Spider-Man stuff? Ah, I just don't like Spider-Man, either. You don't like Eric Larson at all? No. Alright, fair enough. Not my bag, man. Fair enough. Well, he's not my bagley. Hey! Not my bagley, man. (coughs) Alright. Again, we get an excellent fight scene, and again, I don't really have page-by-page notes for the fight scene. Uh, Larson's art, I thought, was pretty damn good in the fight scene. Michael possibly disagrees. I thought there was lots of great Spider-Man poses... Um, and the panel on page 17 of him spinning around in mid-air and firing off cosmic blasts I thought was was really, really good. Again, he doesn't seem to rip his gloves or anything, but, you know, whatever. Having Spider-Man form a web bat to hit the car over the bay was very Bugs Bunny, but there being consequences to what he did here makes it very apt for a Spider-Man story. We get another movie reference, reference to the Stephen King chiller Christine, Oddly, being called Christine 1. Was there a 2? No. Fair enough. Maybe there was a Christine 2 in the Marvel Universe, but yeah. in the real universe there was not a Christine 2. Or was two. it a motorbike instead of a car? <laughs> I would watch that film. <laughs> uh, Magneto throws cars at him, which again was, was quite funny. And there's a full-page splash on page 24, where Larson homages Amazing Spider-Man Annual 1. I'm doing a pretty damn good job of it. This time it's Spider-Man versus Magneto rather than a member of the Sinister Six. But I thought it was excellent. Did you not like that at all? Yeah. Yeah? I, I just wasn't getting into it. Oh, all right, fair enough. I quite liked it. I thought once we get into the Spider-Man fighting stuff, stuff, yeah. money, apparently, I thought this was really good. I, I don't like Larson's Mary Jane at all. And I agree with you, Magneto is by and large pretty useless in the story. But, you know, Spider-Man learning he can fly is pretty cool. I thought yeah. that was quite good. And Michelini gets some great dialogue out of it as Spidey wonders how people like Thor and the Torch do this all the time. As flying, it's just not the natural order of things. And he refers to spinning his webs and swinging them as normal. Yeah. Which yeah. I thought was lovely. Didn't Bendis milk a story arc in Ultimate Spider-Man about flying? No, I don't remember. Someone, one of his friends, like, turned out to be a mutant... And she spent a good ten issues what learning how to fly. He had a Geldof. Was that Geldof? No, it was a girl. Oh, right. I don't know that. I don't remember. Maybe it was later on in Ultimate Spider-Man when I'd given up. Uh, I did have one question. In true Spider-Man fashion, the occupants of the boat both deride and thank Spider-Man for saving their lives. But one of them actually says, he's a guy who almost got us killed. How did he know that? Yeah, it was just a flying car. Yeah, the boat was a huge distance out from the harbour because Spider-Man has to use telescopic vision to see what's happening. Yeah. So there's no way these people could have known that this was Spider-Man's fault. Or at least I don't think so. Maybe it's just the need to blame Spider-Man. For something. Yeah. So anything will do. 
I, I thought this was enjoyable and taken on its own. As part of the ongoing narrative, it's exactly the same plot as issues of Web and Spectacular that preceded it. Bad guy who Spider-Man isn't used to shows up. Spidey is tentative to use his new powers, but ultimately does, prevails, then goes home to Murray Jane to panic about it, adding a few pages of continuing subplots and stir, bake until ready. Some of this is the fault of how comics were written back in the day, and some of it is to allow readers who are only following one boot to not be lost by the story. But when read like this, it does get a little repetitive. Which proves two things. One, Marvel were right to cancel all the Spider-Man titles except Amazing, mm-hmm. now superior, as it eliminates problem two. And B, anyone who says current comics aren't written for the collection is lying. Yeah. So you didn't like this one at all? No. Alright, fair enough. Uh, again, none of these have letters pages, do they? There's an advert for G.I. Joe, the Snake Eyes trilogy by Larry Hammond, Mark Bright and Randy Emberlin. Never read G.I. Joe. No. Sure it's great for that show that we never did we'll do it we'll do a G.I. Joe I've put the call out have you yeah we'll see who responds uh, the next chapter appeared in Spectacular Spider-Man 159 which dropped on October 24th 1989 as before the cover is by Sal Buscema and has once again a shed load of copy in addition to the non-mutant superhero and the Acts of Vengeance banner there's a look now nothing can stop him he can fly caption and more powerful more dangerous more uncontrollable than ever before here comes the cosmic spidey along with but will all that power make a difference against the magical might of the Brothers Grimm in the centre of this cavalcade of copy, Spider-Man flies over New York and the floaty heads of the Brothers Grimm, sadly not Matt Damon or Heat Ledger. It does its job, doesn't it? Yeah. It's it's the cover of a Spider-Man book, <laughs> and it is is adequate in that in that job. Spider-Man's on it. Spider-Man's on it. It's on the cover. It's a Spider-Man comic. Yep. What more could any man ask? Text us, they tell us it is a Spider-Man comic. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I presume this was Sally Krupp. These Shattered Senses, or A Tale of the Brothers Grimm, was written by Jerry Conway, with breakdowns by Sal Buscema, and finishes by Mike Esposito, Bob Sharon Cullard, Rick Parker Letter, Jim Salakrepeditin, Tom DeFalco was editor-in-chief. <gasps> At the Los Angeles County Jail, the wizard breaks Iron Man adversaries, the Brothers Grimm, out of jail, and makes them an offer. In New York, our friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man encounters one of Doom's surveillance droids, but it explodes before he can get any information from it. He decides not to dwell on who is watching him or why, and instead heads to school at ESU, where he runs into J. Jonah Jameson. It's no accident, and Jonah wants to hire Peter for a publication that will rival the Bugle. Before Peter can reply, his spider sense kicks off, and he makes his excuses and leaves. It doesn't take long to realise the cause, as Madison Square Garden is rising into the sky. This seems to be more common than you might think in New York City. Spidey quickly encounters the Brothers Grimm, and after making things hard for the wall crawler, they decide to drop the garden on him. This does little more than tick Spidey off, and the Brothers Grimm realise that they may have made a mistake tackling Spider-Man, who is more powerful than they were led to believe. Spider-Man emphasises the point by punching the lights out. As ever, Doom has seen all, and the data he receives will prove most useful in acquiring this power for Doom. Uh, the opening scenes with the wizards breaking the Brothers Grimm out of jail is fun and one does wonder how on earth a prison would work in the Marvel Universe yeah everyone seems to break out of it yeah with alarming regularity yeah wouldn't there come a point in the Marvel Universe where as a a villain you would be like I can't compete with this Mm. am I supposed to just rob banks for Spider-Man or the human torch shows up how long is it before the uh, police stop just 
Yeah. And people how, how long before the police turn into Commissioner Gordon in the 60s Batman TV show? Yeah. And just go, oh, Spider-Man will handle it. I'm going to go and have a donut. <laughs> Spider-Man hovering in mirror and then panicking again was a neat scene. But again, there's, there's, a, there's a very feel, very feeling of samey, isn't there? Well, how does Spider-Man not know that he's sitting upside down what's flying? <laughs> mid Yeah. How do you not know that? It's for the sake of us, the readers. Spider-Man's yeah. pretty stupid if he's forgotten how he got there. Yes, yes, that's very true. Doom plotting what to do is again a neat scene, but once again, strange feeling of deja vu. Um... Does anybody care about the romantic subplot involving Nick Katzenberg and Robbie's lawyer? I don't care about Nick Katzenberg. <laughs> so that'll be a no then. No. Okay, fair enough. The only forward momentum the story has is in the pages where Jonah asks Peter if we will work with him, for a reduced fee, of course, in starting up a rival for the Bugle after Fireheart bought him out. Presumably it's going to be called Now Magazine. Okay. Because that would be a nice little continuity touch. J. Jonah Jameson ran Now Magazine and the Daily Bugle in the early days of Spider-Man. Now Magazine just kind of disappeared after a while. I don't know why, maybe it got cancelled. Once again, a villain levitates a building. Haven't we seen all this before? There's repetition of themes and then there's repetition. Yeah. And this feels like the latter. Especially seen as, we'll see this again. Yeah. A levitating of a building. It'll happen again. That's all the Brothers Grimm can do, really, if you think about it. All they had on their side was a pre-planning to levitate Madison Square Garden all they did is quote a couple of fairy tales and throw pies at Spider-Man <laughs> how does that seem like a good a theme for a villain <laughs> well there isn't a lot to say about it I mean you pretty much nailed it though um this is, a lot of what we'd say about this would just be repetition of what we said before given this comic is just more of the same maybe we'd be forgiven for that it follows the exact same formula as all the other comics we've covered this week and this is another wheel spinning issue doesn't further the plot in any way does it? No. Nope. it's completely redundant we know all about the acts of vengeance. We already know Doom is watching with a view to seizing these new powers of Spider-Man's for himself and we already know Spider-Man doesn't like these powers and doesn't know what to do with them. The brothers grim my god these guys were lame. They barely seen like they could have held their own against Spider-Man on a normal day. I don't know how on earth these losers have caused Iron Man any problems. <laughs> Iron Man isn't Iron Man one of the heavy hitters of the Marvel Universe? I don't know, maybe the pie's kind of coming from the <laughs> He got pie in his eye holes yeah. and then he couldn't do anything. That makes perfect sense. I'm glad that you pointed that out. Yeah. So suddenly the Brothers Grimm have been elevated yeah, yeah. to A-list. I mean, I get the acts of vengeance as a concept, but surely sending someone who is powerful and maybe just a little bit scurry after Spider-Man. Yeah. The Brothers Grimm? Why doesn't Loki just do it all himself? Yeah, why doesn't Loki just turn up and turn him into a toad? <laughs> or something like that. It's... You know, it's just meh, this issue. I can give it a pass when the story needs to not move forward to counterbalance the other titles. But this is the second issue of Spectacular to feature Acts of Vengeance. So I don't think it's entirely unreasonable to expect some forward motion mm. at this point. We do get a letters page, which was nice, I suppose. Meant there was something worth reading in it. <laughs> Uh, we're going to knock it on the head there, because Michael, as has been pointed out before, has an elsewhere to be. So we'll cover the last five issues of Axe's Vengeance, plus 
the two-part epilogue that appeared in Web of Spider-Man next time. So next week, Acts of Vengeance Part 2, Cosmic Spider, covering Web of Spider-Man 60, Amazing Spider-Man 328, Spectacular Spider-Man 160, Web of Spider-Man 61, Amazing Spider-Man 329, and Web of Spider-Man, I think it's 62 and 63. I could be wrong about that, because I've not read them yet. I don't think. We'll have a look next time. So we'll be back for more adventures of the cosmic, spectacular, amazing web of (laughs) Spider-Man. Bye! Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.